one is a minister. You guys are ministers. We're all ministers. I was reminded of that over the Christmas holidays. I was reading a book called Mark of the Lion. Uh, it's a Mark of the Lion series. The last book was called As, uh, as Sure as the Dawn. So I was reading, it was the third book in a three-part series, and I had read the first two uh, years ago. And uh, Marvin was reading the series and was actually on that one, and Charlotte was reading through it. And I thought, you know what, I don't have a whole lot to do over the holidays, I'm going to read it. And I was really encouraged in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that stood out to me in this book is there was a scene where this, this pagan guy, this rough dude, um, was in the book, and, and uh, people were trying to minister to him. It was just a hard case. And uh, there's this girl that was really trying to minister to him, and, and she and he kind of fell in love with each other, but they didn't say a whole lot to each other. It was just kind of a lot of attention, you know what I mean? A lot of tension. And, uh, but at some point, um, some crazy things happen. He gets saved, and just kind of right after that on the spot, uh, he realizes he loves her. Well, he already kind of knew, but, but he expresses, I love you, baby, you know, and, or however he says it in the book. And just almost immediately says, I want you to be my wife. And she's like, oh, I'd love to be your wife and all that kind of stuff. And the guy that was standing with them just kind of looks at him like, wow, because he kind of saw it coming. And he just steps up to him, grabs his hand, grabs her hand, reaches up and starts praying and marries them right there on the spot. And I remember going, can he do that? Like, is he ordained? Does he have a, a license? To do that, has he even been through seminary? Uh, and this book is set back in the in you know the days uh, close to where Jesus um, lived and died and rose again and that stuff. So you know all kinds of things are possible. But what a sweet reminder! We may be it may be two thousand years later, but but everyone is a minister. I know that we have some some issues with anybody trying to marry somebody, but everyone is a minister. And I wanted to say that to you guys. You guys are a minister. We're, we're all familiar with Romans 12, maybe 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the body is made up of many parts. Uh, the whole is made up of many pieces. The church, basically what it's saying is the church is made up of, of individuals. And I think we forget that sometimes, that the church is made up of individuals. Without individuals, there is no church. We have to remember that and be reminded of that. Without individuals, there is no church. The church is not a perfectly planned system of programs that's oiled and greased and, and slicked down and, and uh, by some organization to produce this your way, right away ministry. And I'm grateful for, for um, organization, and, and I've had leaders that have done a great job of of just preparing and planning for the sake of the body. And one of the things Melissa and I have said over the years of being in ministry is, is um, one thing's for sure, preparation will show you, you care. So there's a, it's important to have a plan and, and procedures and, and organization and all those things. It's just part of our life. And, and the staff and I, we find it a privilege to pray and to plan and to put things in place that will encourage you guys as, as believers. We, it's a privilege for us. So, you know, hear me, what I'm saying. Um, those things are good, but the church, the church in its most simple, and by the way, the, the most biblical form is people ministering to people. That's the church. People ministering to people, you ministering to you, and you ministering to you, and you ministering to me, and maybe I'll have the opportunity to minister to you. That's the church. 
And we've, we've strayed a, a long way from that. I think most of what we've known uh, is the church with its perfectly planned uh, programs attempting to disciple people and to reach the culture for Christ and those kind of things. And again, hear what I'm saying. There's a need for programs and there's a need for organization and all that stuff within a church. But not, listen to me carefully, not at the expense of allowing people to believe that they are no longer ministers with the power to effectively lead and, and, and win their family and their friends to Christ and the people that they have influence over at work and at school. When that diminishes in our mind and in our acting out and our actions, something has gone wrong. And I think we would probably all agree something has gone wrong over uh, the course of, of these last generations and, and the culture we live on. We, we're believers and we can sense something as a whole and there's a lot of good pockets of great things going, but something as a whole is like, wow. You guys with me on that? Would you agree? Um, and what happens when this is happening, and I think you would agree with me here too, is that it, it produces um, people that are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. This is where James one twenty two comes in. So you can go ahead and, and, and open that up right there. James Chapter 1, verse 22, and hopefully you're already there. If you know anything about James, James is one of those writers, you know, he just kind of thumps you all the time. It's like, man, he just lays it down. Here's the deal. You're thumped. And uh, this verse really is no different. There's a good thumping going on in this verse. But there's also, at the beginning of it, is a great encouragement for us as saints. It says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Prove yourself to be doers of the word. And what I want you to do, we like to, we like to really dig in and, and walk away with some stuff around here. What I'd like you to do if you have your Bible or if you can do it in your notes if you take notes is I want you to circle that word prove or you can box it or whatever and then like draw a line somewhere to your margin where you can write more of a literal definition of this word. Because that word prove right there means to become. It means to begin to be. And that encourages me because I don't get it right all the time. And I'm still on a process, on a journey, probably like you, to get this thing right. And there's often times where the enemy will come in and try to produce condemnation in me. But I can look to James' word, though he's usually a thumper right here as an encourager. And he says, just begin to be. Know that you will become a doer of the word. Begin. Have a starting place. If you're not a doer of the word, don't fret. Simply become one. Start the journey. Allow Christ to begin working that fruit into your life. Begin to be a doer of the word. And the second thing I want you to do is look at the word uh, doer. Same thing if you want. Circle it, box it, however you want to do it. Sometimes I'll I'll box words and I'll draw a line to the margin so I can kind of remember that more literal meaning um, from the original languages and stuff. But that word doer, um, you think about being a doer of the word. Obviously, it can mean being a performer of the word, um, a producer of the word, producing the word. And the one that I want you to write is poet. Write somewhere right there, poet. The word poet, we get, we get our word poet from this original Greek word, poetica, blaga, blaga, whatever, I can't remember. But you can see it in that original definition. And so what he's saying is, is but become, begin to be poets of God's word. Live out God's word poetically. I'm not going to go into that because we're going to, in a couple of weeks, we're going to really look at that in depth of what it means to live out God's word poetically. And then he says, not um, just hearers of the word. Hearers, it just means hearers. The, the, 
the word that I, next one I want you to look at, because this, this verse is really important for us as believers, is I want you to look at the word deluded. Circle that one, and let's figure out what that means. James, you realize James is the brother of Jesus. If anybody saw the gospel lived out perfectly, a sinless man for 30 plus years, it would have been James. And so that's why he is so intense about his writings. Get it done. I've seen it. It's possible through Jesus Christ. My brother never sinned. Believe me, I know I had to deal with it my whole life. You know, if anybody knew it, it would have been James, right? So we listen to his, and if you notice, he doesn't actually say Jesus a whole lot. Did you notice that? He doesn't actually, you know, say Jesus or, or Christ or whatever, but his words are almost identical to Christ's teaching. Did you guys ever notice that? Read through the book of James. You're like, dang, Jesus said it almost exactly like that. So anyway, I got off on it. Um, this word deluded. Now here, before you write anything yet, I want, I want you to hear a couple of things. It means this. To miscount or to cheat by false reckoning. Now think of it in light of this. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers, who miscount, who cheat by false reckoning. To reckon is to, is to kind of reconcile something, to tally up. To tally up falsely. The word that I would suggest writing in there, uh, not only as a definition to that word delude, but also to kind of sum up what he's saying in that one verse, is you can write hypocrite or you can write hypocrisy right there. Because that's really what he's getting at right there. Someone that hears the word but doesn't do it very quickly can become hypocritical in their behavior, in their lifestyles. Now, I think you guys would agree with me. I'm going to make a statement. Um, there's really no greater agitation that exists in this world than hypocrisy. You guys hear what I'm saying? Is there anything that aggravates us, agitates us, gets on our nerves more than hypocrisy? And we obviously, you see that in the church. You see people that say they live for God, but they don't, and they ruin it for everybody, Right? We get mad about that. But I'm not even just talking about in the church. And we have seen the effects on the culture because of the hypocrisy in the church. But I'm not even talking about just the church. Think about it this way. Even worldly people hate it when other worldly people cheat. Don't they? I remember whenever I was uh, lost, and I can remember somebody stole something from me one time. I was furious. Even the world hates that kind of behavior. Even the world hates it when someone's not being who they say they are or doing what they would say that they do. Now listen to me closely because I'm, I'm getting intense like James. I am not saying that anybody in this room is a hypocrite or lives a life of hypocrisy. I'm not saying that. Do you guys understand? Raise your hand if you're tracking with me. I'm not saying we're a bunch of hypocrites this morning. I'm not saying we're not. But I'm not saying that we are. Okay? <laughs> what I am saying though is that any one of us at any given moment, can delude ourselves. At any given moment, can miscount our motives. At any given moment, any one of us can falsely, can reckon falsely our behavior, our actions, and find ourselves, whoa. At any given moment, it can happen to any of us. None of us are so pious and perfect that that won't happen. 
Think about King David. It's one of the first guys that came to my head. My head. You think about David and Bathsheba. You, most of you probably know the story. You know that, that King David, there was a time where um, Israel was going out to battle. Uh, they were going out to battle. And David is supposed to lead that army. He was supposed to go out with them. It was his responsibility to go out and fight. But he didn't. He stayed back. And he fell into lust. And he ended up sleeping with the beautiful Bathsheba, who, by the way, her husband was faithful and was responsible and went out into the battle. And David ended up getting her pregnant. And to cover it up, he had Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, sent to the front lines where he would surely and quickly be killed. And the reason he did that is so that he could take Bathsheba as his wife, cover it up. But God had spoke to the prophet Nathan. You guys with me? He had spoken to the prophet Nathan and told Nathan what he, uh, David had done. So Nathan came to David with this concocted story about a rich man who stole a poor man's only sheep. David was furious. It's an outrage. This man deserves to die. And Nathan just squared up with David and with all the confidence and the boldness He said, you are that man. You guys remember that scene? Just like that. King David, the greatest warrior, the model worshiper, the writer of our beloved Psalms, had deluded himself. It's right there. Just like that. Thankfully, this wonderful king immediately had a repentant heart and he fell down. He said, God, forgive me. What have I done? But just like that, the man after God's own heart, the Bible says, had deluded himself. So who am I to say that I would never miscount my motives and physically act out something that I mentally know goes against the word of God? If you are not doing the word, like James is talking about being a doer of the word, then you are doing the world. Worldly lifestyle, it's just, it's... It's like a formula. A plus B equals C. It always happens. You can never get away from that. And so my question this morning is how do we begin to be doers of the word? It starts with our heart. I hope you're hearing me this morning. I ran across this little poem as I was preparing um, to share with you some of these thoughts. I ran across this short little poem. It says, Our heart is a soil that breeds the sweetest flowers or vilest Weeds, flowers lovely as the morning light, or weeds as deadly as the aconite. Aconite is just like a poisonous weed. Flowers lovely as the morning light, or weeds that are poisonous and will kill you. I think what the author of that is trying to say is that the condition of your heart is going to determine the direction of your life. And I think I think we could all kind of get that mentally. I think we we kind of know that. But do we know it enough? Have we heard it enough? And are we willing to become doers of making the condition of our heart where it needs to be so that our life will not be vile, but that it will be sweet? The condition of our heart will determine the direction of our life. And if anybody knew that, it was King David. That other scripture I told you to uh, turn to was Psalms 26, verse 2, if you could look there. Psalms 26, verse 2. And we're familiar with this. I kind of quote it all the time. But it says, Examine me, O Lord, 
prove me. Try my reins in my heart. When it says the reins of my heart, it's talking about our, our mind, the seat of our emotions and the seat of our affections. It's like the reins of a horse. Think about the reins of a horse. The, uh, our emotions, just like the reins of a horse, will steer our life. What do we use the reins? Have you ridden horses in here? How do you steer a horse? That big, powerful machine. You, 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 you use the reins to guide it. And this is what he's saying right here. The seat of our emotions, the seat of our affections. And of course, heart, all throughout Scripture, is talking about the inner man. It's talking about our mind. It's talking about our, our, our will, the deeper uh, places in our lives. And I think it's interesting, too. He, this is, for him, after what he had been through, he so wanted to emphasize how important this scripture was, what he jotted down this day, that he used three different words that mean essentially the same thing in one stinking sentence. He says, examine me, which is one word in the Hebrew that means to try or to prove. Then he says, prove me, which again, it's a different word, but it, what it means is to test, to try. And then he goes on to say, try my reins. Again, a different word to say the same thing. Test me. In fact, this one, one of the bigger connotations of this word is to refine. Refine my reins. You could look at it this way. Refine my affections. Refine the things that I love so much that my heart wants to wrap itself around. Refine my affections. And I think this is interesting too. I'll just tell you. It may even be up on the screen. I don't remember if I put it up there. But that word reigns in, in the Hebrew is K-I-L-Y-A-H. Kill ya. <laughs> That's how you say it. Kill ya or kill ya. Kill ya. And I'll just say it this way. Your heart needs to be refined by God. Otherwise, it will kill ya. <laughs> If we don't have our heart conditioned or reconditioned by God, it will lead us astray. It will kill you. The Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, He said, above all else, above all else, above anything else, above all else, He said, guard your heart. Watch over your heart with diligence. For it's the wellspring of life. It is the source of the type of life that you will lead. So watch over it carefully. Guard your heart. Condition your heart. Otherwise, your heart will kill you. And obviously, Jesus, who is the creator of our heart and who is the, um, the great gardener <laughs> of our heart, knows this. Half the stuff that he said really addressed this kind of stuff. In Mark chapter 7, he said, from, For from within, out of the heart of men, and he goes through this list of these things that will, that will lead to death and destruction spiritually. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murder, adulteries. He goes on and on. In fact, earlier in that chapter, he's talking to religious leaders, the Pharisees and the, and the um, experts in the law and all this stuff. And he says, he says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Rightly did he prophesy. As it is written, this is Jesus talking. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips. The people are very religious and they honor me with their lips. But then he says, but their heart is far from me. He 
get agitated with those who would hear the word, know the word, quote the word, but would not be a doer of that word. Agitates him, I believe. Why? Because he died for so much, for such a better display of glory. Amen? These experts in the law had become hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. How do you get closer to God? And this is very practical and very simple, but this is what 2011 has got to be about if we're going to be people who minister to people. If we're all going to be ministers of reconciliation like what, like what we're told to be. If we're all going to reach out and not count on the church and its programs and the slicked up system to do the work of the evangelist, but we one-to-one, one-to-one, workplace, school, family, friends are going to be ministers of reconciliation and offer the love of Jesus Though people may intellectually know that exists, they may not have experientially have felt it. We can provide that for them, can't we? How do we get our hearts going in the right direction? Jesus put it very simply. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to go. You want your heart to lead you? It's going to lead you to whatever your treasure is. You want to live a life worthy of the calling? Do you want to be a doer of God's word? Do you want to accurately count your motives so that your actions can line up with your intentions? And here's what you do, and you can write this down. Define or redefine your treasure. Redefine your treasure. If you're at a place where it's like, man, he is like thumping me like James. And God is speaking to you, and you really are moved in your heart and in your spirit to go in a better direction this year. Like Nick was saying, what a great time to start afresh, start anew with all kinds of ways, certainly with the Lord. Redefine your treasure. Redefine your treasure, because we will let loose the reins on whatever captures our heart to the point of obsession. Think about, the, think about the gold rush in, in California in the mid-1800s. You guys familiar with that historically? What a crazy time. Did you know that 300,000 people in that five, six, seven years in the, in the mid-1800s came and, and set up camp in California? 300,000. Half of those were from America, from the, you know, our nation, and half of them, I, don't even, I didn't know this, Half of them were from other countries. People were so obsessed with the treasure that was being spoken of in in the mountains and in the rivers and the valleys of of California. 300,000 people in a five, six, seven, eight year span. That's freaky. If that happened to Texas, well, if it happened to Texas, we wouldn't even feel it because we're such a big state, you know. The people were obsessed. And then think about, I don't know if you've seen movies about this, but think of what they do. Men would get the gold whatever you call it, and they would take their families. Come on, people, we got gold to find. I want to know what a gold is, you know? And so they're going to California, and they're, they're traveling over mountains, and people are dying. And they get there, and they're like panning for gold, and they're freezing, and they're getting all these crazy illnesses and diseases, and kids are dying because their dad is obsessed with treasure. It's a crazy time. You guys ever seen movies about that or read about it? It's crazy. That's where the treasure was. And of course, there's all kinds of movies. My favorite, one of my favorite movies, The Boys, because it's clean. Both of them are fairly clean. We can watch these. But my boys love National Treasure. You guys watch National Treasure? But both of them are pretty good. We love that because it's like, 
you know, you got to do codes, and you know, boys like that kind of stuff. So, so do men and women. You just don't get it. You just don't know. We are treasure hunters. No, anyway. But if you're familiar with the story of, of National Treasure, the Gates family, for, um, for a few different generations, were obsessed with finding treasure. And then our, probably our favorite um, treasure-type movies is Go Get the Gold, is uh, Indiana Jones. You guys remember Indiana Jones? Check out, you guys remember the scene? You know, that, um, as far as parodies and spoofs, uh, that scene is used for all kinds of spoofs. My son, actually, one year we got in this Lego set for Christmas, and, it, and that was the scene. That was the scene. You set it up, you build it, you put it all together, and when it's all done, there was a little boulder that was much bigger than Indiana, and you would release it, <laughs> and, it would, and it would roll down, literally. What would possess a man to go into these places, and that's just one scene, the dude's getting chased by a giant rock. What possesses a man to go to such extremes? It's the essence of what treasure is. You think about treasure as a noun. It's a thing of great value. It's a thing of great value. Things of great value tend to capture your heart. Isn't that true? Diamonds are a girl's best friend, right? (laughs) Things of great value will capture your heart. And once your heart is captured, I hope you were captured by something good because it's going to determine the direction you go. You think of it as a verb, to treasure something. I just really treasure this. I really treasure that. It's to value that thing. I really value that thing. And when something has become precious to you, when something has become precious to you, we hold on to it fiercely. Some of you have mementos and treasures and things that have been given to you or that you've bought. And boy, for somebody to take it from me, you will, you will fight. I will cut you. You try to take that from me. Why? Because you, you treasure that. You value that. Sometimes for something to become a treasure, for us to, uh, the worth to be created in our life, we have to hold it for a while. We have to own it for a while. We have to use it for a while before we can really realize its value. And I think that essentially that's kind of what James is saying when he says, just, just begin to be a doer. Just start. And the more you do it, the more you will become a doer of the word. It's okay if, it's okay if you just aren't goo-goo and obsessed with it right now. But just become. Just begin to be a doer. Just begin to allow it to be a treasure. Sometimes we don't really understand what is valuable until someone tells us until it's made known to us, kind of like a, what do they call that show? The Antique Road Show. You guys remember that show? People would come in, there's an old little lady, I found this in my attic. You know, it's old. And it turns out it's like worth $2 million. She says, oh, you know. It happens. (laughs) Sometimes we don't know what is valuable until we're told. And I think this is really what, this next season of our life, we're, we're going to start um, a series called Treasures. A search for, for a treasure. And, and sometimes that can be hard because maybe we don't know what's valuable to us. And so what we're going to do as a church is we're going to go through uh, our church's shared values. In case you don't know where to start, well, I don't know what to value. I don't even know how to, to start becoming a doer of the word. Well, I'm going I'm to help you. I'm going to help myself. 
We're going to become doers of the word together because 2011 is going to be the year where our friends that we've been praying for are going to get saved. And our family that we just kind of go like this at the holidays, there's going to come a holiday one of these days after they become doers of the word. We're going to be like, instead of like, oh my God, you just want to kill them. But we won't always want to kill our family. Why? Because the power of Jesus Christ, (laughs) talk about hypocrite, right? Um, Is going to come. And we're going to become doers of the word. And so we're going to use Soma's shared values. We have six shared values. We don't call them core values. We call them shared values. Why? Because it's not about us. It's not about our church. We're not trying to grow a church. We're hoping that people minister to people and that they'll do so when they share those same values. That's all. It's a palette to work off of. And you may be like, I don't know what to do. Well, let's start, let's, let's start together and let's start with our shared values. Let's look at our shared values real quick, okay? Uh, our first shared value, if you're wanting to know, okay, what's the first place I can start? Where could I start shaping my life? Where can I begin? Let's begin with authentic worship. Authentic worship. What does that mean to us as a church? Well, it means that we value genuine encounters with God that produce life-changing results. Why? Because in the presence of the Lord, things change. Why? Because He's God and we're not. And we need Him. So for you, you may say, well, I have never thought about that, but I want to value genuine. I want to have genuine encounters and I'd actually like to change. I'd like my life to shape up differently. Our second shared value is permeating relationships. Permeating relationships. And I can remember when we were putting these values together, who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? What are, what's going to drive this, this, this ministry, this effort to reach people for Christ? And I remember me and Melissa and actually Kenny and, and Julie Rigsby were with us. And we were sitting down and we were praying. We were talking and laughing and cutting up and being stupid. But we were focusing too. And I remember when we were like permeating. I think Julie was actually the one that said permeating. And I was like, I don't know, I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't her, but, but I came to find out. That what it means is, is like seeping down, going, up, going past the surface. Relationships that go a little deeper than the surface. We value that. We're not perfect at it, but we're becoming, aren't we? And so you can say, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you one deep relationship that I've ever had. I'm really kind of fearful and full of insecurity. I don't really want to open up that way. Well, listen, you can't expect a whole lot of change in your life if you're not willing to allow relationships to permeate in your life. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. So for you, maybe you adopt that value and you take it to the most personal place that you can as an individual. The third one um, is transformational truth. We believe the Bible is the Word of God and that it is complete and that it is perfect and it is able to correct and teach and encourage and rebuke and admonish. It is the lamp into our feet, a light into our path. And if that's the case, then as I'm reading it and trying to be a doer of it, shouldn't my life take a little bit different shape? It should. I should be transformed. In fact, in Romans it says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Where does that start? With the Word of God. So maybe you've never thought of that or adapted that as, a, as an individual, but the time has come, has it not, to begin that. Maybe you've never been in a Bible study, done a Bible study. Maybe you've never read the Word in such a way where you even understand it. Well, we're going to help you with that. Uh, another one is um, uh, selfless giving. 
We value the extravagant pouring out of our resources, hoping that every selfless act will communicate our love for God and our love for others. That just means that as a church, our, our, what we value is giving extravagantly. Now, what we've seen in the church is the church taking extravagantly. And that's part of the process. But that's not my responsibility. I can't say, oh God, I pray that we get a million dollars for the offering this week so that I can get a new Porsche. <laughs> We've seen that. That's just not my responsibility. Is it? I can teach you and I can share principles of God's word about how he blesses sacrificial giving. I can do that. And we do do that. We talk about it all the time. And as you guys are able to do that, not just in your tithes and offerings that you give here, but also outside of these walls. Hello? What good is it if you're giving it all to me? I don't have enough time to do anything with it. Not the way that we expect the church to do. That is supposed to be done person to person. People being ministers of the Word of God. Now, if you've been with us long enough and you've, you've heard of things we've been able to do and some of you have experienced the very extravagant heart of giving um, of this church and the leadership, some of you have experienced it in a lot of ways. And we're not doing it for any other reason than we know that that's how we can show the love of God. In Jesus Christ. Just in the tangible here. Let me help you pay for that engine of your car, for your rent, your water bill, your gas money. Whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. Some of you can, can attest to that. And it's not always me saying, hey, we should, I mean, everybody in our leadership, hey, listen, I, there's a need over here. We need to really give to that. Well, that's a no-brainer. Go give to it. And fortunately... You know, Nick is, is really um, very financially minded, and our finances are so sound and so tight. No discrepancies, no wondering where does this dollar go, where does that dollar go. We know every penny that comes in and goes out. Full of integrity. Why? Because when we are, God will bless that, and we are enabled to be sacrificial, selfless givers. How does that relate to you? Well, um, all kinds of ways. I've never tithed in my life. We'll do that. I've never paid for somebody's lunch in my life. We'll do that. Did you guys hear about the Starbucks occurrence? Was it Starbucks? Did you hear about that? I may be wrong. But somebody just was apparently sacrificially giving, selflessly giving, and they paid for the person's car behind them. Did you guys hear about that? And that person's like, sweet. And they paid for that person, and it went on for 60 cars. That's what I heard. For 60 cars. That's amazing. What if we did that? Oh, really? We don't have five bucks to spare? If you didn't have five <laughs> bucks to spare, what are you doing at Starbucks anyway? <laughs> right? <laughs> get over there and get some dollar, dollar seven coffee from McDonald's. It's not as good, but you still get your juice, you know. Another one is, um, another one of our is, is intentional discipleship. And listen, that simply means um, doing things on purpose as we can. Doing things on purpose to bring people along. Doing things on purpose to get people from here to there. If possible, and if people are willing. What if we did things on purpose with the intention of bringing people along in the faith? By the way, there's a level of that responsibility as a church to provide those things. But the biblical model is person to person. Person to person. Everybody is a minister. Everybody has something to give. If it's nothing more than sharing the fact that you have been saved. 
If you have more knowledge of Jesus Christ than that, offer it to someone. Go buy them coffee. You could do two values in one. (laughs) We value doing things on purpose to mature the saints, equip them for the works of the ministry. And there's scriptures there. And the last one is uh, uh, missional living. And this has always been one of our values, but we added it officially this year. Basically, that, what that means is we are all ministers. We are walking, living, breathing missionaries. We live in a, in a missional state of mind. It means we have a pocket full of tracks. Always ready to give them out. <laughs> Those of you who know me well know that I'm kidding. Um, <coughs> using our mouth helps. We value living out the love of Jesus Christ, believing it will compel the spiritually lost to follow him. We believe that. There's a faith inside of us that believes that when I show the love of Jesus Christ through words or by example, something transpires in the heavenlies and people are turned on to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And at some point, maybe I'm planting a seed, maybe I'm watering a seed, maybe I'm even being a part of reaping the harvest or the growth of that seed. But something is transpiring in the heavens. That's what we believe. That's what we value. And if you don't, the cool thing is, is you can begin to. And as you begin to, things will start changing in your life. Your heart will begin to change. You're going to realize the value of God's word. You're going to realize the value of living a life worthy of the calling in Jesus Christ. And your life's going to shape differently and the people around you's lives are going to shape differently. And then one more thing that I, I want to offer to you guys, and, and I'll just put these kind of back there by the uh, communion things. This is I, just, I printed this up this morning, but it's just a list of those values that we just um, put out. So on the front, you can read exactly what we read on the PowerPoint, but on the back, um, this side is entitled Letting Loose the Reins, and there these values are listed. And what I want to challenge you to do, um, and some of you may really need something like this. Some of you may have other ways that you can move forward. But to look at these values and make them your own. If you don't have a starting place, if you don't know where to start, take these values, authentic worship, and say, this is the kind of person I want to be. And here's a, thing, a few things that come off the top of my head that I can begin to do. And write those things down. And let this be a reminder of the journey that you are choosing this year, 2011. Write those things down. Uh, permeating relationships. What do I want to be? What kind of friend do I want to be this year? What kind of family member do I want to do? What are some steps that I want to take? What are some things that I know I've been held back because of fear and insecurity and, and hurts and struggles and pains that I'm willing to overcome this year because I see the value in it? And the list goes on. And another way I want to encourage you this year is, is I'm, I'm able to best pray for you and encourage you and our staff because we get together and we pray for you. Oftentimes we call you out by name. And it would help if you guys are able and you want to to email us some of these things. Here's what, and some of you need to do that for an accountability sake. Here's kind of what my thoughts are for 2011 as it relates to transformational truth, intentional discipleship. This is the direction I'm heading. I want you to know it. I want you to pray for me and hold me accountable. Okay? So I'm going to put these, I actually put them up here, but I'm going to put these by the um, 
communion things in the back. You can take one if you would like and um, keep it, put it on your refrigerator, put it in your Bible. I, really, please email me if you feel like that's, that's what you need to do and you'd like to have somebody help walk you through that.